This is an ABC podcast. Are you in the market for an electric car? Despite the cost, there's demand in Australia, but EVs are in short supply. And as you'll hear in this discussion from the Grattan Institute, one of the reasons for that is our fuel efficiency standards, or rather, the lack of them. This is Big Ideas. I'm Paul Barclay. In the race to net zero, the idea of a mandated carbon ceiling for cars is now getting serious attention from the Federal Climate Change and Energy Minister. So why do we need it, and how fast do we have to move? The speakers are Marion Terrell, the director of Grattan's Transport and Cities program. Helen Rowe, who leads the transport program at the not-for-profit Climate Work Centre. Car industry spokesperson Tony Webber, the chief executive of the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries. And Ingrid Burford, a senior associate at Grattan. There are three types of technology we can use to reduce carbon emissions. The first is that we can make petrol and diesel-based vehicles more fuel efficient. And so that can mean, for example, transitioning into smaller, lighter cars and more fuel-efficient engines. We can also increase our use of hybrid technologies and we can increase our use of zero-emission vehicles. There are different types of zero-emission technologies. I will often talk about electric vehicles, but when I do that, I'm including all the different technologies on the table for zero emissions. There are technologies, but the challenge for policymakers and for the government is to identify the policy instrument that makes best use of those technologies to bring carbon emissions down from cars and utes. There are broadly three types of policy instrument on the table. The first is regulatory, and that would take the form, for example, of EV sales targets. An alternative is to subsidise the purchase of EVs, and the third policy option is to adopt an emissions ceiling. The downside to an EV sales target is that it doesn't create any incentives to reduce emissions from diesel and petrol engines. And it will be the case that Australian manufacturers will continue to sell these for a couple of years into the future. And so when we focus exclusively on EVs, we're leaving some low-cost technology options on the table. And that's true as well if we think about introducing EV subsidies. In addition to that difficulty, it's also true that EV subsidies are a particularly expensive way to reduce emissions, but moreover, we don't know precisely what we're going to get. So we could spend quite a lot on subsidies, but not actually guarantee that they translate into the kinds of cuts we need. And that's exactly why Grattan recommends an emission ceiling as the ideal policy for reducing carbon emissions from the cars and utes on our roads. What an emission ceiling does is it places a limit on the average carbon emissions from the cars and the utes sold each year from each manufacturer. And the way that that limit is expressed is in terms of grams of carbon per kilometre. So each car has a known uh, number of grams of carbon per kilometre that it emits. The key question, though, and one thing we'll no doubt debate, is what exactly those annual limits should be. What we know is that we need to hit net zero by 2050 and cars in Australia are on the road for at least 15 years. So that means we can work back from that 2050 date and identify the fact that we need to hit zero grams of carbon per kilometre from new cars and utes by 2035. Because if you think about selling a carbon or diesel-based vehicle in 2034, that scoots around on our roads for about 15 years but it needs to be out of the system by 2050. To place that zero gram of carbon target in context, at the moment, cars and utes in Australia, on average, new cars and utes, emit about 170 grams of carbon per kilometre. So what we need is we need to move from where we are now down to zero grams of carbon by 2050. And the question is, what pathway do we trace out between now and then? If, for example, we have a target in place of 140 grams of carbon per kilometre, and I am Toyota, what that might mean is, for example, if I sell two RAV4 edges, which emit just over 170 grams of carbon per kilometre, I can then balance those sales by selling two RAV4 hybrids, which emit just over 100 grams of carbon per kilometre. 
So together across those four sales, the average grams of carbon come in just under the 140 target. If the target then ratchets down the following year to 125 grams of carbon, I could sell one RAV4 Edge and three RAV4 hybrids and meet the target that way. What you can see as this target ratchets down further and further is that low and zero emission vehicles will play an increasing role in the sales profile of manufacturers' vehicles. And in Toyota's case, I would start to think about selling electric vehicles, and in fact they are. So this year they've got the Toyota BZ4X coming online, um, and that's exactly how we can think about emissions ceiling, creating incentives for manufacturers to supply electric vehicles to Australia. And not just to supply electric vehicles, but the kinds of electric vehicles, the models, the price points that Australians will want to buy so that manufacturers can deliver on their target. So an emission ceiling has two key benefits. The first is that it gives manufacturers that incentive to supply and sell EVs in Australia. And the second is that it's technology neutral. And this is a crucial detail. It treats a gram of carbon as a gram of carbon, no matter where it comes from in the vehicle fleet. And that is what allows us to minimise the cost of meeting our target when we use an emission ceiling to do it. At Grattan, we looked at three different pathways from where we are now at about 170 grams of carbon per kilometre down through to that uh, target point of zero in 2035. Today, I'm going to talk primarily about what we call our central target path because it's a pathway that is ambitious but achievable. And what that looked like is start kicking off with an annual target of 143 grams of carbon per kilometre in 2024, ratcheting that down to 100 grams by 2027, hitting 25 grams of carbon per kilometre in 2030, and then finally and crucially hitting zero grams of carbon per kilometre on average across new car and new sales in 2035. And that pathway would deliver a reduction in carbon about 450 megatons, megatons by 2050. So today when I'm discussing Grattan's policy, that's the policy that I'll focus on. And at this point, I'll pass across back to Marion so that she can take you through other, other presenters' target programs. So thanks very much, Ingrid. Um, so I'll pass now to you, Helen, to, to share with us your perspective. I guess the fundamental point is why are we talking about this solution and why right now? And it boils down to the fact that Australia's got high transport emissions and we are a bit behind on reducing them to, to date. We're also behind most of the world on EV uptake and basically Australians just can't get their hands on EVs at the moment. And that's really the critical uh, issue at the moment is EV supply uh, into our market. Why right now the new federal government has come in and they've announced they're going to be developing up a national uh, EV strategy. So exciting time. We know we need to course correct and we've got some solutions on the table to have a, have a discussion about today. So taking it back to the transport emissions. So transport's the third largest sector for emissions in Australia. And as, as other sectors are starting to decarbonise, transport is sort of set on track to be the largest sector of, of emissions, not too distant future. It's also the fastest growing. So we've still got population growth. We're still moving to larger vehicles. So it's actually continuing to grow, which is um, something we really need to tackle. And as Ingrid mentioned, we know that cars, private transport is the majority of the source of transport emissions. So we need to change that around. But where do we need to be heading? So ClimateWorks has undertaken modelling of different scenarios and looking at particularly at where we want global warming to or don't want global warming to raise above. So based on our two-degree scenario, we've looked at what we need to be on track for in terms of EV uptake by 2030, and that's at 50% of new car sales being EVs by 2030. And we've seen states and territories starting to align to that target largely. So some of our bigger states and big car markets, Queensland, Victoria, New South Wales, have set that 50% target, and ACT has set an even bolder target. So we're sort of seeing that, that being where we're sort of seeing our, our trajectory but at the moment, we're only getting a trickle of EVs uh, into the country. Last year, about 2% of new car sales were EVs. And we know that suppliers that are coming into the market are selling out very quickly, in some cases in minutes, because that's how small the supply is that's coming into our market. Based on the most recent federal government projections with the current policies in place when they did those projections, we're on track to be at about 26% of new car sales being EVs by 2030. So that's falling short of that 50% target. 
And what Climateworks has been looking at recently is what's the cost of us falling short of that that 50% target, for example. And we know that flows through to cost to consumers and uh, and businesses, as well as cost to the environment. So we've calculated kind of an operating cost to consumers of not being able to get their hands on an EV of about $5.5 billion in additional operating costs and just over seven megatons of CO2 emissions put into the atmosphere. If we flip that over the other way or set it, set it another way, it's basically a win-win. If we set bold targets for EV uptake, we can achieve wins for consumers and businesses in terms of operating costs, but also wins for the environment. You may note there are, we haven't really included in our calculations that upfront cost of EVs. We know that is higher at the moment than an internal combustion engine, but we also know that globally those prices are coming down and set to be reach price parity between EVs and combustion engines in the second part of the decade. So once we reach that point, the operating costs will really become that critical factor and you can already get savings from having um, an EV now. We also know that those savings are much higher if we start looking at ClimateWorks' modelling around a 1.5 degree pathway. And 1.5 degrees, limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees, is increasingly where the global conversation is being set of actually that's where we need to be to avoid some pretty um, drastic impacts of climate change. So if we hit it, if we're talking about the, the gap between that 1.5 degree scenario and where we're currently tracking, that means we've got a loss of um, about $20 billion in savings lost to consumers and 24 megatons of CO2 emissions going into the atmosphere. So the bigger the ambition, the, the more the winds are for, for the environment and cost savings. The good thing about being a little bit far behind is the rest of the world has done this stuff already. We can see what's been put in place and what's been successful. So we know much of the world has got in place a fuel efficiency standard or a CO2 standard, whichever term you've used, but uh, setting a cap on CO2 emissions across the the offerings of of, um, manufacturers. And in effect... This provides an incentive to supply to that country, which is the critical barrier in Australia at the moment. What we know is global supply is being sent to those markets that do have those kinds of standards because if you don't meet that standard, you're going to be fined or you don't meet the, you don't meet the regulation. So there's really no incentive to send um, vehicles to Australia. We know Australia's main problem at the moment is supply. So these join these two things together, this seems like a really well-fit solution for the predicament we find ourselves in. So ClimateWorks has a report coming out very shortly on EVs and really the policies we need to do this. And the key thing in that is recommending that we need to put in place a competitive fuel efficiency standards so that we are competitive in that global market for that supply doing that so we can boost the incoming vehicles coming in here so we can get our hands on an EV, make this shift quickly so that we can be on track to start reducing those transport emissions and reducing that that growth there. So we we need to course correct currently and the window is open now for us to to do that and there's solutions on the table. So thanks very much, Helen. Um, Tony, over to you. FCI started work with its members in 2016 on a CO2 target. Why? Because we see it as an important issue. As an industry with long-term investment timeframes, it's important to give yourself as much time as possible to smooth the transition to such a major change. And this is an enormous change. It's once in a hundred years change. We wanted government to mandate a CO2 target. In 2020, the second best option was a voluntary CO2 target. And as an industry, we had the courage to self-impose a target on our members. Now I ask you, How many other industries in Australia or around the world have been courageous enough to impose a CO2 target on themselves? In 2020, we publicly announced two things, our CO2 targets for 2030 and, secondly, the fact that we would regularly review the targets starting in 2022, and that process is just about to kick off. Why review the targets? Because time progresses, we have a better understanding of emerging technologies, worldwide availability of batteries, consumer trends, and likely costs of new technologies. Thus, we can have a more educated view about this possibility. Let's be frank about this issue. It's complex. I fear that many people bring very uneducated and simplistic views to the table in regard to this complex issue and purport to be experts. We at the FCI also do not have perfect vision on developments around the world. The work that car makers, R&D centres are undertaking and what suppliers such as Bosch and Delphi, the really big players in the supply sector, what are they undertaking now in terms of research for the next model cycles that will come out somewhere between five and eight years from today? 
Thus, we've engaged S&P Global, the world's leading forecasters on the automotive sector, to provide us some insights into the future of low emission vehicles. So let me outline some of their analysis. With no policy change, where will Australia be in 2030? Well, the total market, we think there will only be 18% battery electric penetration. In the volume market, that will only be 14% in 2030, whereas the premium market will be much higher at 61%. Why is that? Because when you're building a premium product with a premium price, you can afford the extra cost of the battery, whereas the volume end of the market, which is 88% of our sales, cannot afford that. If we split those segments that we sell into up, it tells you a very interesting story. Let's just focus here on the volume end of the market. Passenger motor vehicles, which are 22% of our sales, 14% of those will be battery electric. SUVs, which are 53% of our sales last year, 15% of those will be battery electric. But like commercials, will only be 1% battery electric in 2030, but they represent a quarter of all sales. So we have a problem. Now, if you look at the pricing, and the big issue here is about putting the consumer because we need to convince the consumer to buy these technologies. If you look at the entry point for a C-segment volume car, in 2021, the cheapest price before on-road costs was for a battery electric was 49900 You could buy an internal combustion engine in that same segment in 2021 for sub $20,000. And 97% of sales were cheaper than the battery entry point. Let's move forward to 2030. The battery entry point will be 32,500, according to S&P Global, which 76% of other technologies will be cheaper. So how do you convince a motorist to pay the premium to move to battery electric? You then need to look at this in a world context, because we are takers of technology from around the world. Now, the three biggest markets and the three most progressive markets when we talk about the movement to low emission vehicles are Europe, China, and North America. And what S&P Global says is that the dominant technology in all those three markets in 2033, just two years out from 2035, will be battery electric. But the most advanced market in terms of its penetration of battery electric will be Europe, but they will only be about two-thirds of all production will be battery electric. There will be a mixture of hybridisation and still some ice in those markets in 2033. And those markets will need all the battery electric to meet their obligations. Likewise, China follows a very same, similar trajectory and so does North America, but they lag by probably two to three years. So we have a problem of actually supplying the world with battery electric technology. What will Australia look like with no policy change in 2030? Well, S&P Global forecasts that 18% of our sales will be battery electric, 4% will be plug-in hybrid, 23% will be hybrid, 31% will be mild hybrid, and 24% will remain ice. But the real issue here, as I alluded to before, was utes. They forecast that only 1% of the market for utes will be full battery electric. 4% will be hybrid, 53% will be mild hybrid, and 41% will be internal combustion engine. So we have a lot of work to do. We also need to look at this in a holistic way. What's the charging infrastructure? So by 2030, they believe we'll need 724,000 home chargers and 26,000 public chargers. So whilst there's been a large number of investments by multiple governments in this country, more work has to be done on that front. So what I say is give us a CO2 target and the industry will give you the technology. However, the target needs to be framed around reality. In thinking about supply constraints and getting enough vehicles into the Australian market, that's all predicated on the kind of prices that your members are charging at the moment. But what if Australians were prepared to pay a fair bit more um, to get the supply here? 
then will we see the, the supply flow in? It's an interesting question, Marion, and, and I just uh, participated in the CINMOC panel with the international manufacturers. And my counterpart in the UK made the really interesting point that if every market goes to 100% battery electric and the world demand for cars annually is 100 million, can we produce 100 million batteries by 2035? And my understanding is the answer to that question is no. So they have to be rationed somewhere. So this is a global challenge, as we all know, and we all want to get there because the consequences of getting this wrong is extreme. And it's very unfortunate that we're still having this debate in this country in 2022. We should have been having this 15 years ago. But there is that problem that we can't just make the assumption that the technology will be available. And we also must make the assumption that it will be affordable. So I think this trade-off between the accessibility and affordability is a real tension that we don't talk about very much. Perhaps I'll turn to you, Helen. Some of the questions that were submitted in advance for this webinar went to this issue of who's going to be able to afford an electric vehicle. I think people are mainly talking about electric vehicles, but potentially also the, the much more fuel-efficient internal combustion engine cars as well. And, for example, one person asked about older Australians. Ben asked about different demographics, sort of how broadly accessible they are in the population. So in this tension, where do you stand? More EVs, even though they'll only be really accessible to wealthier people, they're more out of reach perhaps to lower and middle-income earners, or do you prioritise the reduction of emissions above accessibility? It's a good question, Marion, and an interesting trade-off. And I think, like, if you think about this, it's just a flow-through of a vehicle technology as we have might have safety improvements on a new car or I know my first car that had a CD player flows through the system. I think at the moment we're looking at, for example, our, our 1.5 degree line target of saying 70% of new car sales being EVs by 2030, that's still under 30% of the total vehicle fleet. So still, you know, more than, you know, more than 70% of cars are still the average car. This technology will flow through the fleet to the secondhand vehicle market, as most people do. If you're trying to get an affordable car, you're looking at that secondhand vehicle thing. So I think that's kind of how the flow through will happen. Maybe the difficult challenge that you think um, we've, we've also discussed a little bit in our report is thinking about that tail end, what's going to happen at 2035, where we've still got some, you know, clunkers travelling around the road. I think that's, it's a little bit of a way off and we've got some time to plan for this, but really it is that kind of getting it going. And, and I take Tony's point about the global supply chain. I feel like at the moment though, like Australia doesn't even have it, it's all in the water. We're not just not getting anything. And I think there is, like we've talked about the cost savings of owning an EV in the report. I think that does give an inclination to want to want to purchase a vehicle, it might cost a little bit more. I mean, we we're seeing sort of the Hyundai sales of sort of some of the more affordable models selling out, you know, I think it was in the media, selling out about seven minutes. So I think people can calculate what the cost savings is going to be for the vehicle in that's going to be cheaper to run. Uh, people want to do the right thing. They're probably willing to put a bit, bit more effort into um, purchasing those things. They just can't get their hands on it. So I think there is some appetite to buy the EVs. I mean, we're seeing in uh, some of the surveys about people's desire for their next car to be a, a battery, battery electric EV, they just can't get their hands on it. It's those people buying them that's going to flow through to everyone being able to get get an EV. And obviously the price is going to come down and major manufacturers around the world are already signing up saying they're not going to be producing non-EVs in the next decade. So it's going to become, I think, normalised as as with every technology. I think some planning needs to be done to make sure there is an equitable outcome and we are thinking about that second-hand vehicle supply. Another avenue for that is probably government fleets as well, about getting government fleets to take bold targets for uptakes that can flow through to the second-hand market. So, Ingrid, what is your take on this? It's no secret that I'm an economist and so, like all good economists, I am pretty firmly wedded to the idea that there is a relationship between price and availability But the discussion obviously gets to the core of the climate change debate as a whole. There is a tension between our ambitions and the cost that we are prepared to pay to reach them. And it's in this context playing out when we debate carbon reduction policies in the light vehicle sector. The key thing I think about when I'm faced with the kind of the challenges that Tony puts forward in terms of constrained supply and Helen's focus on fairness and equity is to come back to, I suppose, first principles, which is to say, 
that the target that we have is non-negotiable and we need to treat it that way. We know we need to get to zero grams of carbon from new cars by 2035. The real question is how we do that at least cost. And that's exactly why we recommend an emission ceiling because unlike every other type of policy, which is very EV centric, it allows manufacturers to make the most of every available technology on the table to reduce their emissions on average, which makes it cheaper than trying to achieve the same reductions solely adopting increased numbers of electric vehicles. The other benefit of an emission ceiling is that we can think about structuring that pathway through time to our advantage. So we can think about relatively slowly tapering down our emissions targets in the early years in a period of time when electric vehicles are still more expensive than internal combustion cars, petrol and diesel cars and youths, but also signalling a really strong tapering off of those annual targets as we get closer to 2035. And the benefit of doing that is that there's two things going on in Tony's explanation of the global supply of electric vehicles. One is that there's an allocation question, this idea that if there's a fixed pool of vehicles out there, Australia's scrabbling to get their hands on on scarce supply. But it's also true that there is a quantity dimension to this as well. And if we are prepared to pay more and we're signalling that we need that to come online, not, not necessarily immediately, but it's on the horizon and we know where it's going to fall, we can influence supply through the use of the strategic, careful, clever use of an emission ceiling. So I'm very reluctant to sort of take um, supply levels as given. We know that people are very responsive to price. We know that with a target in place, manufacturers have an incentive to increase the range of vehicles, electric vehicles available to Australians, not just in terms of models, but in terms of price points, because we can see that in countries overseas that have emissions ceilings in place. So there is no doubt that there are global challenges. And as we get to the really tight pointy end of an emission ceiling, it's entirely possible we'll start to run into them. But we have a target. We need to meet it. It's our policymakers' job to ensure that we set out to do that at least cost. And an emission ceiling is our best chance of doing that. And we can really focus on crafting that trajectory to our advantage so that we have the best odds of achieving it at the lowest cost. I'll start with the point that you raised, Tony, which is that FCAI did recommend a voluntary target, but my understanding is that the industry met it in respect of cars and light SUVs, but not in respect of heavy SUVs and light commercial vehicles. So let me be clear. Back when we started work on this in 2016, we wanted a mandatory target from the government. And it's still the case now. The reason why you want a mandatory target is because we're one of the very few advanced nations. I think maybe only Russia and perhaps Turkey does not have a CO2 target. Mm-hmm. And when you have a CO2 target, it sends a signal to head office around the world, the best technology into the marketplace. So that's why we want a CO2 target. There wasn't the political will to join us in that. So we took the suboptimal option of having a voluntary target. But we always were quick to transition. If we could get a mandatory target, we would have jumped on that at any point in time. And the thing about our target is we have multiple review periods in that. So we start in 2020 and we're now about to review it now because we will we can see at those review periods what's happened in terms of the technologies, what's happening with availability of batteries, for instance, what's happening with consumer trends. What is the proportion of people who want to buy an SUV and light commercial in this country, which is around about three quarters of all sales? That is a challenge. And what is the likely cost of new technologies going forward? So we think that we should have a CO2 target mandated by government. We should review it so that we can have the quickest trajectory and make it as the most efficient and effective transition whilst bringing Australian consumers along. The policy that you don't want is in which you have a target too ambitious, given the circumstances. People can't afford to buy the new technologies and therefore they own their cars longer. So when they don't purchase new cars, and the average person who buys a new car, because most Australians do not buy new cars, of course, because we sell a million a year, but there's about 20 million adults in the country who drive. If 
people who turn, turn their car over every four years on average hold that car longer. That means that vehicle is not available for seconds, third and fourth purchases, which make up the entirety of the car market. And therefore, you get an older fleet and a dirtier fleet. So the policy paradox is if you go too hard, too fast, you could actually come up with an outcome in which you get a dirtier fleet, and that would be a complete disaster. I guess another design feature that's related to this is, Ingrid, in the modelling that you talked about, you um, had a single ceiling for all types of light vehicles, and that's different to what Tony's organisation who recommended, where there's one for larger and one for smaller light vehicles. Can you explain to us why you support a single ceiling rather than dual ceilings? Um, Just quickly to explain the concept of sort of split targets or dual targets, the current FCAI uh, proposal, and it takes the form of different grams of carbon per kilometre targets for two different sales categories. So one is uh, passenger vehicles and light SUVs, which is about 65% of sales at the moment. And then the second category is heavier SUVs and light commercial vehicles. The thing that concerns me and the reason I favour a single target is that if we introduce separate targets for different classes of vehicles, there is always the danger that there will be a shift in the share of sales from one category to another. And Australia has seen huge shifts through time. So we've we've talked a little bit about the fact that SUVs have become far more popular through time. They've really displaced passenger vehicles. And so if we have targets that are split across different segments of sales, that makes it much harder to predict the efficacy of our emission ceiling because People might migrate from a lower a category with a lower carbon emission standard to one with a higher carbon emission standard by shifting the, you know, shifting from a small vehicle to a bigger, heavier one. And so the real danger is that we won't get the same level of efficacy with split targets as with a single target. I suppose I would say that if there ever was a version of the world in which there were two targets, would be absolutely dependent on really frequent reviews of sales shares to make sure that they are jointly tracking towards the outcome that we need. And I think that just adds an extra layer of monitoring and review in a system that's slow to change. And so I I don't really particularly see a benefit to splitting the target compared to having a single target that then allows manufacturers to respond to consumers' preferences and a single carbon emission ceiling at the same time because, for example, in that state of the world, they can encourage consumers to buy across whichever share they prefer while still hitting the target that gets us where we need to go. If you have an electric car, you need to charge it. But what if the power you're using is produced by fossil fuels? This conundrum is the first question from the audience. If you use coal-fired electricity to charge your EV, does that cancel out its climate benefit? There's one that quite a few people have asked, and I'll ask you, Helen, and that is about the source of the electricity. If the electricity comes from brown coal, is it worth the bother? I mean, at the moment, the energy system is decarbonising, so there is benefit now in getting an EV. Even better, I think we've seen some data about the commonality of people taking up, say, EV subsidies who are in areas where they've also taken up a solar subsidy, so seeing some commonality there. So if you're in that situation and lucky enough to have both, there's an opportunity to kind of control your own destiny a little bit there to make sure that you are using more green uh, energy sources there. So I think it's worthwhile now. It's only going to get better by having an EV and that's kind of modelled through. It's happening pretty, pretty quickly. And there are ways that you can take take charge of that if you are able to, to reduce your emissions straight, straight away. I think there'll be some challenging things in the future about how we manage the grid more broadly and how we, how we encourage really good charging habits. For example, not getting home or getting home at night time and plugging our cars in, but maybe, so I suggest in this day and age, working from home one day a week and charging off solar if you can. So things like that I think are going to come up, but I think it's a, it's a good question. Obviously, in people's minds, they're trying to do the right thing, but um, I think you, know, you can get savings already and they'll only get better. And I support Helen's view. And we've had this discussion at the FCAO as well amongst our members, and I think there needs to be a holistic approach here. We can't wait for the electricity grid to become 100% renewable. We need to move in tandem. 
and there needs to be a holistic approach across our economy. And that means we need to have the grid working, we need to have the recharging infrastructure, and we need to supply the vehicles. So I think it's really important that we work together in unison and we can't wait for one part of the economy to have the issue resolved. So we can't have the grid resolved before we start to move on EVs. We need to move in tandem. And the other thing is, in the longer term, we need another discussion about what role the battery and EVs play in actually storing energy because that capacity is available. And the reality is the battery in your EV is normally, especially for a full battery electric, is substantially bigger than the battery that you'll have to take the the energy off your solar that's on your wall. So we need to think about this more broadly, and it's a really important discussion. Thinking more broadly, there's another theme coming out in the questions that I'd like to put to you. Perhaps this is also one for you, Helen. We've got a number of questions about the broader transport context. For example, Graham points to our addiction to cars and Murray and Mark ask whether it wouldn't be more useful to encourage a movement into public transport and cycling and walking and so on. I couldn't agree more with those suggestions. Uh, I think it's really important and I was kicking myself for not saying that when we were talking about equity as well, saying that we're not all going to be relying on on cars, nor do we currently now. So I think it's really important. And I think um, ClimateWorks is doing some work at the moment about how do we actually account for these different modes and different technologies in terms of how we make that um, broader decarbonisation of transport transition. I think it's easy to get caught up in the um, EV, the technology shift from in EVs. Uh, and I think it's kind of coming from a same lens of thinking we have our houses and we want to shift it to solar, that, that transport simply an energy transition. Uh, and it sort of seems funny when people talk about EVs being a mature technology, I think, well, public transport and bikes are also very mature technologies that we already have. You can already reduce your emissions by just reducing the occasional trip to public transport, walking or cycling. And we already know that a lot of the public transport networks are already decarbonising as well. So one of the things that we're looking at, particularly in this space, is thinking about, well, how do we put these modes on a level playing field? Because there's ways of thinking about this. Um, A common one that's being used around the world is to think about emissions reduction in transport as Avoid, shift, improve. Improve is how do we improve the vehicles we have. Uh, Shift is about how do we shift to lower emissions intensive modes, which is sort of your walking, cycling or freight on rail, for example. And uh, avoid is thinking about how do we just reduce the overall transport demand on our cities. So I think a couple of key ones for managing this in the future are going to be thinking about the total emissions of transport, I think will we'll, we'll sort of come into play in the future. So it's kind of sometimes called scope three emissions or embodied emissions. So if you're buying a car, it's got a lot of emissions involved in making it, plus all the infrastructure it needs. We know that that has a lot of uh, carbon involved in that as well. So how do we actually work out which actually are the optimum uses, particularly in urban areas where most of us live, where we've already got congestion and if EVs are going to be cheaper to run than they than they are now or free if you're using your solar what's that going to induce in terms of additional traffic on on our roads but also thinking through you know as I sort of said it's going to take a long time for that EV transition to happen through our fleet uh, even at 2030 where you have sort of you know 20 to 30 percent uh, of increase in EVs right now we've got you know, not the next eight years ahead of us to use all those other modes and how do we incentivise them into the mix because we have them already already at hand to do that sort of stuff. So I'd love to see um, more debate uh, around this at the upcoming COP discussions and in Australia more broadly. Thank you for that, Helen. Uh, on this question of the higher upfront purchase price but it's coming down, I, I suppose one of the great things for motorists about EVs is that they require less maintenance than internal combustion engine vehicles. But of course, that does challenge the business models of the car dealership industry, because a lot of its profitability comes from after sales service and uh, and so on. This is a point that John Quiggan has made in an article in the conversation today as well. He's said that the lifetime costs of maintaining an EV engine are about half those for a comparable internal combustion engine vehicle. So Tony, how existential is the threat to the dealership industry? The world changes, Marion. We've changed technology and the world changes around it. So listen, it is an issue. It needs to be managed, but I don't think that's a barrier at all. 
when we get EVs, we will also quickly follow with that will be connected and automated vehicles, and they will need to be maintained. So the complexity of the vehicle will continue to grow beyond when we get past this discussion around EVs. There will still be a role, and it will be very critical when we go to connected and automated, because an automated vehicle will need precision, and it will need to be maintained highly. So it is a, it is a valid point, but I think we'll move past it very quickly. So one question I'm going to give to Ingrid, um, and that is, it, it's a question that's come up from Kirk, and it's uh, giving you a sales opportunity, Ingrid, which is, Kirk's question is, will a similar approach be effective for heavy vehicles? <laughs> Thank you, Marion. Marion has referred to this as a sales opportunity because we've been thinking hard about heavy vehicles here at Grattan. And so we've been, we're well equipped for this question. The thing I've talked about is our preferred policy mechanism for light vehicles is an emission ceiling. But there are key differences between light and heavy vehicles that mean that an emission ceiling works extremely well for light vehicles, but not might not work quite as well for heavy vehicles. And the key reason for that is that you'll recall that when I talked about an emission ceiling, I was talking about each car being sold having a known grams of carbon per kilometre attached to that vehicle. When we start thinking about heavy vehicles, they're much more complicated. So we've got an, an engine unit, we might have different numbers of trailers on it, and we might have different tyres on those trailers. All of those variables affect the carbon emissions that are going to be generated as that truck runs around doing its truck task. And so the measurement challenge when we deal with heavy vehicles is much harder than when we're thinking about it for cars. And so that does mean that we have to think differently about the best policy instrument for heavy vehicles and reducing carbon from that sector because it is an additional 4% of carbon emissions in Australia. And it's going to be a particularly stubborn 4% as well. So we need to be thinking very clearly and very hard about how we tackle it. So I don't think, um, Marion, it's unreasonable to say watch this space we have been thinking about it and it's an incredibly interesting issue and as with light vehicles there are new technologies coming online for zero emission trucks as well and so that technology again is um, slightly more varied as I said it's a more complex space we have to think then not just about battery electric vehicles but also hydrogen fuel cell vehicles as well which means that the infrastructure challenge is harder again and so it almost deserves a report, all of its very own, because it's such an interesting and rich topic. And it's certainly something I'm very happy to talk about at more length in the future. One of the other things that we haven't really picked up on that's come up through the Q&A is charging infrastructure. So I'm going to put it to you, Helen, the charging infrastructure. So Tony's talked a bit about um, what S&P have told him that they estimate will be necessary. My question is a bit more simple. Who do you think should be paying for charging infrastructure, for the establishment of charging infrastructure? I think it's a bit of a mixed bag, Mary, in terms of how it's going to be charged, who's going to be paying for the charging infrastructure. And I'm, I'm really interested to see how the market develops. I mean, I think it fundamentally there's going to be some sort of opportunities. I mean, we have petrol stations in all of our areas. What's going to happen to them? What's the opportunity? And we know you have to sit, if you're on, if you're on a road trip, you're going to have to um, sort of sit and charge your car. So there's going to be commercial opportunities around uh, charging, as there already is. They're being rolled out around the place. Most charging is going to happen at home. So I think that's going to be uh, on them. And lots of companies coming out. We know companies like Jet Charge, uh, you know, doing a roaring trade because everybody wants to start thinking about this sort of stuff. So I think it's going to be a mixed bag. I'm really interested to see which companies are coming through. I know there's many of them out there with different business models who are looking for opportunities to make money off charging and, and how they're going to do that. I think the fundamental one that maybe we've been thinking about is who's going to have trouble accessing it and who should be thinking about that because I feel like some of the other stuff will work its way out. But things like you're in an apartment, if you're renting, dealing with uh, owners' corporations can be challenging at the best of times. How are we going to deal with the retrofit conversation? And also, I know there's some uh, discussions at the moment about the National Construction Code. How do we make it mandatory to be EV ready for those buildings? So they're some of the things that I think are really those structural things that if we don't get them right now, we're not setting things up to work. And maybe a little bit, like I know there's lots of government investment going into charging and it's going to become part of the package of buying an EV. Maybe less worried about kind of the nuts and bolts of the charging, but the people who may, may miss out or the opportunities to really get charging in place now. 
So, Tony, do you agree that really this isn't a question of government subsidy by and large? Helen's view that it's more regulatory and letting the market do its thing. Is that how you see it? Yeah, it's an interesting mix. I think there's an infant industry argument here and then there's a market-based response. I think in the initial stages, it's sort of chicken and egg. There mightn't be enough electric vehicles on the road at this point in time to support a charging infrastructure from a commercial perspective. Then the government needs to step in. And we've seen governments around Australia doing that. But I think there comes a point in time where there is the there is the car park of electric vehicles floating around on our roads. And then the the private sector will respond with the appropriate level of investment. And I think that investment will also be different because, as everyone alludes to, most charging will happen at home. I think that's right, especially for those who have houses with garages. But the secondary issue is the road trip, as I think Helen just referred to, because recharging is not refuelling petrol, uh, it won't take three minutes. It's going to take longer. It takes longer now. That time will reduce over time, but we need to think about that. And we need to also think about the investment because the investment in the substation needs to be made at the point of charging. And I know there's a, a petrol station in Australia that looked at this. They have eight charges at the moment. They wanted to go beyond that. So if they only even wanted to go one beyond that, which is not what they wanted to do, obviously, it was going to cost $20 million to invest in the substation that supports that area. And they are major issues. So it, it needs to be, as I said before, there needs to be holistic responses to all these issues. Tony Weber, Chief Executive of the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries with Helen Rowe from Climate Works and Ingrid Burford and Marion Terrell from the Grattan Institute. Phasing out fossil fuels and pumping up renewables... That's the challenge for electricity generators. And to sustain the grid, we need green energy at scale. Solar panels on your roof will only go part of the way. Electrical engineer Michelle Taylor investigates new technology as part of her work with Energy Queensland's power network. She spoke to RN's Cathy Van Extel at the 2021 World Science Festival. The system was not designed to pump lots of energy from the bottom up to the top. Originally started from the top going down and so now what we're seeing is, uh, as you said, the uptake of solar has been phenomenal in Queensland. It's two megawatts a day of solar being installed. And what that means for people who don't um, quite know what megawatts are, our big power stations, coal-fired power stations, we're basically installing one of them on rooftops every year based on the numbers. So lots of things going in. And so, yes, we really have to th rethink about how we make the system work, make it safe at the same time, make it as equitable as possible and ensure the security of supply. So many of you will have heard about things like some um, an, out, an outage that happened in Alice Springs, an outage that happened in South Australia. We've had some issues related to renewables incorporating them in the network and we're learning a lot from those issues. We don't want to get to that state in Queensland here and we hope that through um, a lot of the work that we're doing to try and enable renewables across the network will allow that to continue, but it means we have to be a bit smarter than we have been in the past. We need to have more visibility of a network. I'll let you in on a little secret, and that is that we really don't, to date, have a good visibility of what's happening at the customer level, where you're connecting into the network. We can see it at the, what we call our substations, but right down at the customer level, our visibility is very low. In order for that renewable energy integration to work, particularly with our distributed energy resources, we need to get a bit more visibility. We can't put monitors everywhere, but we can do very smart mathematics to give what we call distribution state estimation, which gives us a whole heap of insight into what's happening on the network through monitors scattered around the network. And can you explain why it's important to understand what's happening on that network in real time? Sure. Well, what happened before was everything came from the top down. So you could just look at a substation and from there you could see pretty much, you could predict what was going to happen. Nowadays with the, uh, with the increasing number of solar PVs, with the intermittency of solar PV as well, we're finding that uh, a lot of things are happening at the low voltage before they even come up to that medium voltage area where we actually have those monitors. So from 
an area before where, uh, you know, one customer to the next, it looked pretty similar. Now it's looking very different. Therefore, to have that knowledge gives us a better idea of how we can enable renewable energies to connect in. At the moment, if, you, if there's too much solar PV on a network, we actually have to um, limit the export. We don't want to be in that situation, and so we're developing the smarts to be able to say, okay, we might have to turn it off on an occasion, but most of the time, or we might have to reduce it to, to a lower export level, but most of the time we can allow it to go in. We do want to reach the 50% renewable energy by 2030 targets of Queensland, and to do that, we need to think a bit more smartly about how we run the network. For Energy Queensland and for organisations such as yours, what are the main issues that you need to consider and what are the roadblocks in moving Australia to 100% renewables in the not-too-distant future? The journey sort of started with ensuring safe operation and so through the 2000 to 2010 there was a lot of emphasis on safe operation of the network and now we're getting into that space where we're looking more at how do we be smarter about how we operate the network so that we can allow this uh, greater uptake of renewables. So there's an evolving piece that we're doing and at the end of the day it's always about trying to ensure that the customers have reliable and secure supply, but also that as the middle of the day, you know, in the last, between 2013 and 2020, the minimum demand is halved. So what's happening is in the middle of the day, the amount of energy that's required from our more traditional sources has gone down considerably. And there'll be a point in time where in the middle of the day, they, those large coal-fired power stations may not be needed at all. And we still need to keep the lights on, even if a big storm comes through or anything like that. So we need to have more stability. We've just introduced a program to start some battery storage in Queensland. Uh, there has been a lot of battery storage, smaller projects have already happened, but now we're talking about some significant renewable um, energy storage for that renewable. Queensland especially is really leading the charge in these massive, large-scale solar farms. I think a lot of them are yet to come online, but what role do they play in addition to all this household solar? Uh, look, I think when it comes to integrating the larger scale systems, well, there's, there's still challenges, but they're very different challenges and, and you have, uh, you know, a lot better uh, ways of managing that as a, as a piece of infrastructure uh, as opposed to sort of like solar homes where you've got, you know, different people manage and, and maintain their systems differently. So there's that side of things. But it's also quite a challenge because the network that we run is the distribution network and there's a lot of space, but it's in areas where we don't have a lot of infrastructure. There wasn't a reason to run a lot of the heavier capacity networks. So we're finding that there are, uh, in New South Wales in particular, hearing a lot about some upgrades to the uh, transmission network in New South Wales to cater for these larger solar farms. In Queensland, there's still a lot coming online, but uh, we're also having to look at that as a, as a option. Well, it raises that question about how Australia does compare them with how other, other nations of similar demographics um, are, are managing these challenges in terms of the energy transition and those changing grids. Where do we lie? Well, it's, um, it's interesting. We, in, in distributed energy, in terms of rooftop solar PVs, we're at the head. You know, there's nobody as a country that's as far advanced as we are. And as a state of Queensland and the state of South Australia, they are at the top of the pile. So everything that we're learning is, um, is really applicable, hopefully, to a lot of other places and countries. Um, however, in the large-scale systems, we're probably a lot further behind a country like Germany. Running the planet without costing the earth. You can hear the full discussion by clicking the link on the Big Ideas website. I'm Paul Barclay. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.